I'm Jeff Cohen. Lenny Fold grew up with parents who practiced what he believed to be Orthodox Judaism, only to find out later on it was actually somewhere between conservative and Orthodox. He ultimately chartered his own religious path and today is an uber-popular professor at the Sai Sims School of Business at Yeshiva University. Let's hear his story now. Lenny, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate you taking the time. Now, this is an audio recording, but I just have to say that you have some truly impressive facial hair that I'm looking at. I, I can only describe it for baseball fans who remember Raleigh Fingers, who had the mustache that went like way out on the sides, and you have the nice long beard. So how did you come to this style? So I, I was not born with this. <laughs> I had the mustache to my wife's chagrin probably uh, several years after we got married. I somehow grew a beard and a mustache short, shaved off half the beard, left the mustache, was in the kitchen for, who knows, over an hour before my wife noticed that I even shaved off half <laughs> of my beard, which is lucky, which tells you how much she does not care about looks because otherwise she would never have married me in the first place. Uh -huh. But... Uh, then after that, I kept this mustache. I had this big, big mustache forever. I was known in the community as the guy with the mustache. Once I found out that there is no such thing as a permanent record, <laughs> that I could do whatever I wanted. So I let my hair grow, my mustache go, my beard went in all about 10 years, 10, 11 years ago when I left the corporate uh, finance world. Wow. Okay. So you felt like you could uh, have whatever look you wanted once you became a professor. Yep. Okay. Yep. Got mm -hmm. it. So we're going to transition now from facial hair to the story of your life. Ah, <laughs> uh, so much more boring. I know. But I, I saw in doing some research on you that even before we get to your story, that there's a pretty fascinating story about what happened with your grandparents, which I think could be its own interview in its entirety. But maybe there's a condensed way you can share some of the amazing things that happened in that in that history. Sure. It's made me who I am to a certain extent. The story begins with uh, basically my curiosity about what happened in Germany. My parents grew up right outside of Frankfurt on Main, and three of my grandparents, as I was growing up, were you know I was brought up with the fact that they were killed by the Nazis. My parents never hesitated talking about what happened. You know they didn't dwell on it, but they didn't resist questions. When the Berlin Wall fell and communism kind of collapsed, the uh, Red Cross, the International Red Cross, came across thousands, millions probably, of records that the Germans kept, maintained, and now was available to the public. And they requested, it was in the New York Times, saying, oh, you know, anybody who's interested in finding out what happened to relatives, write in. So I got my parents to give me as much detailed information as I could. I mailed it in. It was uh, right before Christmas. I got a call. I was sitting in my office saying, you know, the information you told us about your three grandparents that were killed is right. It's correct, except for one. Two of them, yes, died in um, when you said in 1942. But we were able to track your mother's mother, Lena Frankfurter, from one camp to another from 1942 to 1945, 45 to 48, and then in 48 she emigrated. And I said, there's got to be a mistake there. You know, she it couldn't be. My sister's named after her. We know she died. Then they said, no, the records are quite clear. Lena Frankfurter emigrated. I said, where'd she go? And they said, we don't know that. We'll we'll do another study. We'll try to find out. And so that was before we had email. And that was before we had, you know, there were blogs or whatever they called them at the time. So I then wrote probably hundreds of blogs I posted and wrote letters all over the world to highest to 
things, Social Security in different countries, where she could possibly have gone. I met with the Klarsfelds in Paris, the Nazi hunters, to see what they might think. And at the end of the day, nobody had a really good idea until my brother-in-law got in contact with some people in the Israeli government who said, yes, we were able to track a woman named Lena Frankfurter immigrating into Israel just when she emigrated out of Germany. And so I got all excited, you know, she could, she would have been in her late nineties, but maybe she was still alive. Then they traced her to an old age home, a nursing home in Hadera. Uh, and I said, I'm coming, I'm, you know, I'm getting on the next plane. And before I could even make arrangements, the next report came in and said that they found a court affidavit that this woman who claimed she was Lena Frankfurter, my grandmother, swore out an affidavit that she was Fanny Goodman or some other name, but that she had gotten my grandmother's papers in the camp. She was Romanian and used those to em immigrate to Israel from Germany. Yeah, it, was, it was quite uh, emotional. Had you told your mother when there was hope that she might be there or you waited till the whole story played out? Great question. I did not tell my mother because she, I didn't want to upset her that there was, you know, think about it. Here's this woman that could have been her mother alive for years who didn't look for her, who didn't try to find her or, you know, that she, and um, even the Clarissa was like, well, you never know. She, you know, this woman, before we knew it was not my grandmother, might have been emotionally disturbed because of the years in the camps. And uh, so you can't think that she didn't look for your mother and maybe she didn't know where she was. Uh, and I did, so I did not tell my mother, but at some point, and my mother was a really good yek, you know, good German Jewish woman. She never cried. She called me on the phone and my again in my office said, Lenny, what's going on here? I got a call from the International Red Cross that everything is being uh, investigated about my mother. And I said, oh, no, remember I asked you for that information? You know, they're just looking into it. There's nothing, you know, they, they mixed up the story and she accepted that very happily. And then at the very, very end of the whole shebang, we kind of gave her some of the story, but I didn't want to rile up things that didn't need to be. But for you, it was, must have been a pretty big roller coaster thinking, I'm about to get this unbelievable news and maybe she's even alive and I'm going to find her. Yes. And then to have the reverse happen in the end, that's a pretty crazy story. Yeah. The the initial shivers, you know, and I'm not, I, had, I guess I have my parents' uh, good lack of emotion to a great extent, but the initial like shivers of thinking, wow, this lady could have been alive. My, you know, my grandmother who, we, you know, it was really, it was emotional. And, um, and then finding out at the end that actually everything was the way we thought it was. I can't say it was calming, but at least it put that to rest. So let's talk about your parents now. You said they were from Germany, so they at some point found their way to the United States and, and met each other there or in Germany? They met each other in the United States. They were in separate towns, probably. Uh, I've been back to Germany a number of times initially for business, and every time I went, I would go to visit and try to see. Uh, I went back to my parents' towns and met the people who bought or, you know, for a nickel, probably their, their properties. And I went to uh, the cemeteries where not my grandparents were because they were probably in crematoria, but my great grandparents and I found their graves, which was exciting. And uh, my parents grew up in uh, small towns, Frankfurt on Main, Birgel, and, and was my mother and Schaffenberg was my father. And they emigrated to America. My mother left at 17. My father was more like 21, separately, not knowing each other at all. And then where did they land? Both in Washington Heights, you know, Frankfurt uh, on the Hudson. And mutual friends just introduced them to each other. And it was love forever after. 
Ah, that's beautiful. And so that's where you were born? Yeah, born and uh, bred. I didn't leave the island of Manhattan except for maybe going to summer camp till I probably my first trip to Florida when I was 18. Wow. You know, Manhattan, Washington Heights was it. That was my island. So now give me a sense of how I said in the introduction, were you raised Orthodox, conservative, somewhere in between? Like paint a picture for me of the things you were doing as a family growing up. I believed until I was 12, 13, that we were fully Orthodox. I mean, we were in Washington Heights, which is with a unique kind of uh, environment. German Jews, very predominant German Jews. And we did not go to Breuer's, the traditional, really, you know, very formal. We went to Schottenberg, which was a, uh, a real German Jewish Orthodox shul run by an Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Kahn. And I thought we were, you know, pretty Orthodox. But then as I grew older, I realized, hey, you know, my father was going to work. And, you know, lights went on and off in the house. And television was being used. And as I got more knowledgeable, I said, you know, they're not checking every single ingredient on the, you know, <laughs> on, on everything they bring into the house. So maybe they're not so orthodox. And then as we discussed and we talked openly about, you know, where they came from and they, their answer was we do what we, what our parents did. You know, we are doing exactly, we were orthodox in Germany and probably that was kind of considered maybe orthodox in Germany or not. So they continued doing what they believed was the right thing. I'm sure they knew that it would be better not to uh, turn on lights, but this this is what was done. You know, their tradition was that. And I went to Hebrew school. I went to Orthodox Hebrew school. And then I went to Rabbi Kahn's Hebrew school in Schottenberg school, which I didn't appreciate at the time. You know, you're in second, third, fifth grade, pounding this stuff into you. And I said, not for me, but right. I did it. You know, I was a good boy, relatively good boy. I got my basic understanding and knowledge in Hebrew school. What happened for you after the bar mitzvah as far as your, the way you were living from a Jewish perspective and how you were either continuing to grow or maybe gave it up at that point? There were a few things at the time. One was, as I mentioned, Rabbi Kahn. He had a major influence on me, not that he went out of his way to cure of me or try to make me more religious, just his behavior, the way he carried himself, the way he was such a strong believer, adherent to um, halacha. You know, he followed all the rules. Obviously, he was. You know, he came. He was a Breuer's uh, student of Breuer's, but he was the head of our shul, and we used to have a breakfast club on on Sunday mornings, eight o'clock. And it just the, his whole persona was almost angelic. I also remember hearing as a small child, and again, you know, in the Yek community, money was pretty influential. And I remember hearing that my father came home from a board meeting of the shul where he said, Rabbi Khan turned down a raise, you know, which as a little kid, I said, well, who would turn down money? And I heard him say, yeah, he told them that since he doesn't have any children yet, they should keep the money for the shul. Mm -hmm. I said, wow, that, that's amazing. That's mm -hmm. really uh, incredible. So his being who he was certainly led me to think more about well, maybe I should be looking more into this. Maybe there's something, uh, you know, just being sort of halfway there. And then from an intellectual standpoint, I also got to the point where I said, well, either it makes sense to be Jewish following Judaism or it doesn't. But halfway in doesn't make sense at all. So either I should go to the right and, and learn a lot more and try to do more or just give it up. 
it's either yes or no. It's not one of those, all right, I can do 50-50. So conservatism uh, reform didn't make sense to me at all. It would be like, you know, we, sports. If you said, okay, we're going to play, you know, Major League Baseball, but we're going to use a totally different bat or we're going to shorten the bases. You can't do that. So it, that's where I got to intellectually. I sort of like evolved. There was not one thing that made me all of a sudden say, oh, you know, I saw the light. Uh, I, I studied more. I learned more. I started befriending people who were yeshiva students, even though I was in public school. It was an evolution, a continuing evolution. I'm continuing to evolve. Right. How did your parents feel as they knew how they raised you and that they were doing some things and not others? Were they supportive of, hey, if you want to go further, great? Or do they think, why can't you just kind of stick with where we are as a family? Very supportive. They never once tried to tell me, um, you know, stick with what we do. Never. And as I got a little older, probably when I got to be 11 or 12, my father stopped going to work. You know, so he used to go to shul and then go to work. And then he stopped doing that. And that was, I think, because in the early days, they had to eat and pay the rent. You know, they stuck to what they did pretty much. You know, they continued to turn on lights throughout their lives. They stuck to what they wanted and they were supportive of whatever I wanted. You know, if I wanted, you know, new to fill in or something like that, they never said, oh, you know, you're, that's ridiculous, you know. No, they were supportive. So then take me inside this evolution because I could see you being curious and wanting to learn more of the things that someone who's fully orthodox would be doing. But then there also would be, am I going to adopt some of these things and bring them into my life? So what were the first couple of things where as you learned them, you said, you know, I think I'm actually going to incorporate this into the way I'm living. Not using electricity on Shabbos was probably one of the first things I gave up, you know, especially watching television on, you know, Saturday afternoon. That was something that was hard to not use electricity and not turn on lights anymore. Be careful about eating and again, I went to public school, so all these kids would be bringing in what maybe was kosher, but didn't have a, you know, a heksher on it, so I couldn't touch it anymore. Stopping to take elevators on Shabbos. Also spending a lot more time learning, reading. Now, I, I don't want to call it learning so much. It's, you know, it's not what we traditionally call learning, but learning basic stuff. I mean, I knew a lot of basics. My parents were, like I said, conservadox. So we knew a lot. I knew a lot. But to really add on, to get to the place where I could say I'm practicing orthodoxy, I'm practicing it the way it should be done, uh, required me to learn a lot of things. I, I still go back, and one of the funny, funniest stories that I can recall from my really youth was my parents sent me to Breuer's Day Camp, and I had my nice little plaid yarmulke, which I think I still have somewhere, and the first day we all lined up in a park uh, to have lunch, and we all washed our hands at a water fountain. And none of the kids would talk to me after that. Now, again, I was maybe I was maybe seven, you know, seven or eight years old, but they wouldn't talk. And so I went and I sat and ate my sandwich and then they were talking. And I never I didn't understand what was going on here until I even then, eight, nine, maybe it took me another year to figure out after you wash, before you make your bracha over the you know mozi over the bread, you don't talk. So that the, there's a lot of things that we just take for granted when you're orthodox that you have to kind of learn as you go on. And, and those are the things that differentiate you. And that's, uh, you know, from being orthodox. People who were born into an orthodox family take it for granted. And they choose to do it or not to do it. Those of us who didn't grow up exactly that way, it really takes a big learning curve to get there. 
And how did you have the strength to start taking these things on when you're in public school? Because one of the things my wife and I say is that the critical move we made was moving to a community so we could be around people who are trying to live the same way we are. Because it's, it's very hard not to just become your environment. So you're telling me you have these kids coming into high school eating questionable things. They're, they don't know these different things you're starting to learn as you're becoming more orthodox. So how are you finding the strength to just like keep going at it? Or are you starting to surround yourself with people who are on the same kind of journey to you? I think it gets down to the fact that I've always viewed myself as slightly different than the average person anyway. I didn't play sports. I was I did a lot of reading. You know, the teachers wrote home letters to the my parents, you know, Lenny Lenny's not behaving. He's doing the, you know, everybody else is doing this, Lenny's doing that. So I, I attribute it probably to my being comfortable with just being different than a lot of people. So once I decided that this is the right path for me, and the more, again, the more I read, the more I learned, the more I, I became acquainted with more uh, religious friends, the more I said, this is the right thing for me. And what they do, what my non-Jewish friends and what my Jewish friends who are not religious decide they want to do, that's good for them. And so I stuck with it to the point that when I got to high school, I went to Stuyvesant High School and the, the first year in high school, I wore a yarmulke. The second year, I wasn't as excited about wearing a yarmulke anymore. But since I had worn a yarmulke for the first year, I couldn't now all of a sudden say, oh, you know, I'm giving this all up. And I wasn't giving it up. I just didn't feel as comfortable declaring myself as the, you know, especially in a, in a, it was a lot of Jewish kids in the school, but very few religious kids. And I, I didn't feel like I should hold myself out as the religious, you know. So I then started wearing, at the time, it was in the 70s, early 70s, a beret. So it was okay to be like a revolutionary Orthodox Jew. But wait, because something happened freshman year that made you more uncomfortable? I'm like picturing you being stuffed in a locker or something like that. But what, no, what made you less comfortable? I was hanging out with not necessarily the best of boys. You know, it was a boys' school at the time. It was the last year that Stuyvesant was all male. And, um, you know, I had a lot of friends that were not pure and good and, and quality, you know, guys who went to concerts and the first ones to strike, uh, go on strike from school. And so I kind of felt a little bit uh, self-conscious that here I am wearing a yarmulke, but hanging out with these guys because they were fun. You know, today they would be perfect citizens. Then they were kind of like the bad boys. You know, nobody was <laughs> nobody was carrying around guns or, or, you know, syringes or anything like that. They were just having fun. But I didn't think it was really, for a guy with a yarmulke, the right crowd to be in. So it was either give up the yarmulke or stop hanging out with them. I chose to just wear a hat. So then I would think the next kind of critical decision you'd have as a kid who's going through the public school system is when you get ready for college. That could be a moment you go to Israel. It could also be a moment you choose a secular college or a Jewish college. So what did you do at that point in your life? So for me, it was a question. I, again, I went to Stuyvesant. So all, many of the students at Stuyvesant were going to Ivy League and certainly out of town, good quality schools. And being the yuck that I am, I said, why would I ask my father to spend, and who knows what it was then, $3,000, $4,000 a year? <laughs> I can't ask him to pay for that kind of stuff. City College was free. It was $19 a, a term. So for me, City College was going to be it. A lot of Jews there. I could live at home, go to my shul, do whatever I needed to, and I continued to evolve and get more and more religious. And the keeper was back on for college? 
Mm, no, no kippa. I think probably then I was up to a baseball cap. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So what did you study and what did you think you were going to do post-college? Ugh, I had no idea. I had no idea what I wanted to do, none, and didn't till recently, meaning <laughs> I uh, I went to college, had no particular interests. I, um, I took Jewish studies course. I took Elie Wiesel for uh, Holocaust studies. I took Yiddish literature class with Nathan Suskind, who was a wonderful man, and I um, then majored in economics. And why did I major in economics? Because I found out you don't have to do writing. You don't have to write much. So that was, I fell into economics. Then I graduated with a Bachelor of Science because I took a lot of math and science courses and I still didn't know what I was going to do. You know, what do you do with an economics degree? So I went for an MBA at NYU. You know, in my MBA, it was an accounting MBA. Again, not because I particularly loved accounting, but I didn't know what else to do. And I figured if, okay, if I get my accounting degree, I can go into other things if I get bored in accounting. You can't go from marketing into accounting, but you can go from accounting into marketing or finance or all sorts of stuff. So I did that, did well at NYU, got a job in what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers um, in auditing, stayed there for a few years, and then got bored with auditing. Again, not because I liked or disliked auditing. I knew I didn't want to go anywhere near tax. And a, um, a friend of mine who had a very similar background, you know, both religiously and secular college and, and school, wanted to transfer into the tax department. And... They told him, no, you, you have an MBA, but you're not a lawyer, and we're only transferring lawyers. We're only hiring lawyers. So I then, at that point, had gotten an, a job offer from Citibank to move into their, I don't know, some accounting theory place. And I thought, okay, I'll tell the Coopers people, PricewaterhouseCoopers, that this is, you know, I'm going there only because... I wanted to be diplomatic only because I would, wanted to transfer into the tax department, but I know that they're not going to transfer me because I don't have a law degree. And I did that. I met with the partner in charge of HR at the time, and he said, oh, well, let me look into it. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, let me look into it. Maybe we can move you in. And they started recruiting me into the tax department there. So I had something. I had done something right, I guess, that the other guy didn't. And they took me out to dinner and gave me books. And I then ended up spending another four years there in the tax department. And that's what led me to my career in a, as a tax guy. Not because I like taxes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few things I want to go back to from what you just said. Sure. It's so funny to me that you go to college, not sure what you want to do, and you end up doing accounting because... So I grew up secular. None of my friends went into accounting. But now that I'm living in the Orthodox world, I feel like at least a third or half the, <laughs> of the people I meet are in accounting. So it's like yeah. a very clear path for religious people that you end up pursuing, but not for the same reasons that most folks do who are right. religious. So I find that interesting. There is a reason for this, by the way. And I tell this to my students as well. I usually wait till midterm. And that is, I say to them, listen, guys, I know that you will start at college as pre-med. And then you got a C in bio. <laughs> and so that you moved over to becoming pre-law. And then when you got a B or a C in your first poli-sci class, you said, oh, maybe I'll try accounting. Mm -hmm. And here you all guys are. <laughs> you know, so that's, so that's why, that's how they became accountants. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to ask you, the, the companies that you're mentioning, I'm sure they have a ton of Jewish people, not a tremendous amount of religious people, certainly not back when you were starting there. So what was it like as you were becoming more and more down this path of being observant? Do they know about this? How is this affecting life at work, say Friday afternoon, et cetera? 
back then, I think I was the fourth Orthodox Jew hired by Cooper's Pricewaterhouse. And I told them early on, I didn't want it to be like a surprise the first, you know, early Friday afternoon saying, hey, guys, I'm out of here. I did not wear a yarmulke to work. Or a baseball um, cap. Or a baseball cap. No, I think a yarmulke would have gone over <laughs> bigger in those conservative places than a baseball cap. But um, I didn't. And I remember telling them early on that I'll have to take off Friday afternoons and not, and I can't work Saturday. And they kind of looked at me like, okay, you know, we'll play it by ear. At Cooper's, it never was a problem. It never became a problem. The interesting place uh, when I went, I went to a company, a huge oil and gas exploration company as the uh, tax guy there. And my future boss, he was about to make me an offer. And I knew it was coming. And I said, Alan, before you make me an offer, I want to be upfront. I'm an observant Jew and I don't work on Friday nights or Saturdays or holidays. And he said, oh, yeah, I, I grew up as, you know, Orthodox, too. I'm not anymore. But he said, but, you know, if we're going to have a uh, major meeting about an acquisition and you're required to come in on a Saturday, I'm sure you'll you'll come in. Uh-oh. And I said, no, no, Alan, that I mean it when I say I can't work Friday nights and Saturdays. And he said, yeah, but let's say that the the, um, the board and, and the chairman need you there Friday night. You're going to be there. He, and I said, no, Alan, there's two things that take priority over work. I, I, I certainly put a lot of uh, effort and, and caring into my work, but my family and my religion come before work. And he looked at me and he said, well, if you think you can do it, we'll hire you. And it never was a problem. It, this is a very dicey moment for a lot of people because maybe they think I should bend a little bit and go to these one or two meetings because this could really affect my career. But if you do that, you've really opened the door to how could you ever say no. Yep. But at the yep. same time, it, it takes a lot of confidence in that story you're just telling to hold your ground when there's a possibility the person will say, then I can't give you the promotion. And, and you don't know what they're going to say until you come out with, I'm holding my ground on this issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I feel bad, actually, for conservative Jews who say, you know, yeah, I'm not working. I'm Kippur Rosh Hashanah. And then something comes up on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, and then they yeah, they go in, and I, you know, a it makes it bad for all Jews because the, the non-Orthodox world doesn't understand really the difference between uh, second day, first day, Shavuot, Sukkot, you know, any of that stuff. Nor do they understand the difference between conservative versus uh, Orthodox Jews and Reform. So if one Jew comes in, why can't you come in? But for me, it was never. That's what made it easy. Once I was determined and accepted, and, and again, uh, by that point, I'd been into it already by probably 15, 20 years of really being orthodox. I wasn't bending the rules for a job. Once you're committed, it's so much easier to just say, this is what I do, this is what I'm willing to do, and this is what I won't do. You know, and I traveled all over the world. So, you know, I always had to accommodate my uh, schedules or they had to accommodate my schedules for Shabbos. They had to accommodate me for um eating, you know, everybody would go out to dinner and I would go along. I never said, no, I'm not going with you. I'd go and I'd pick and choose what I, and then they, and they all knew. They could never understand, especially this company Schlumberger, which was a French based, and they spent money on, on meals, especially wine, the best wines in the world. They could never comprehend, why aren't you drinking the wine? <laughs> that I didn't tell them why I wasn't drinking the wine. There I said, I just, I've never acquired a taste for wine. 
you know, I didn't want to tell him, oh, well, we don't drink wine because we don't drink wine with you guys. Right. You know, so but I found actually, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that it was the uh, non-Jews, for the most part, who were much more accepting of my requirements and my prohibitions than it was the former Orthodox or uh, less religious Jews. Right. Like you found that they respected that you have yeah. these like firm beliefs. Yeah, I've heard that story yep. a few times, which is it, it's like great, but also sad that the people in our own religion have a harder time understanding it. Mm-hmm. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's just because they feel like it's some kind of indictment on how they're living, that they're not doing some of these things. I'm not sure what's behind it. I heard a, a great story just the other day. Rabbi Schreier and uh, Tienak B'nai Shuren told us this uh, during his drusha that I think it was um, some very orthodox rabbi was coming to um, an airport and a non-religious Jew came up to him and started berating him for looking so Jewish. You know, he look, he, he dresses Hasidish. You know, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to cause this uh, attention, uh, negative attention to us? You know, duh, 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 duh. he's going on and on and on. And then um, the rabbi turns to the guy and says, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Quaker. Uh, and the guy then this uh, non-religious Jew says oh I'm so sorry I have such respect for you people Uh you stick to what you believe in you dress the way you think you should you don't care about other people what their thoughts are on and on and on and on and on you know saying how how wonderful the the Quakers are and all that and at the end of that the rabbi picked up his hat and showed him learn from this Mm -hmm. yeah let's hope (laughs) he did I doubt he did but let's hope he did (laughs) Right. He probably went home and said, oh, that rabbi, he, he lied. He deceived me. <laughs> so let's now turn to another side of you and let's bring marriage into the picture. So I'm wondering your wife's background and, and where she's from and also religiously, like how she was raised and what point she was at when the two of you came together. Mm. My wife, whose name is Michelle Sklar Fold, her father was a well-known in the Jewish community, he worked in all sorts of hotels as the sort of religious director. He worked for Yeshiva University as a fundraiser and JNF as a fundraiser. He was a camp director in all sorts of Orthodox camps. Fun, great guy. And her mother also was a you know beautiful woman who both of them grew up. I'd say her fa- her father, Sonny Sklar, grew up fully Orthodox, uh, modern Orthodox from the beginning, young Israel Orthodox from way back when. And her mother was probably more conservative growing up. And uh, then when she married my father-in-law, she became Orthodox as well, fully. And they brought up their four children as modern Orthodox from the beginning. She's kind of maintained exactly what her parents did. Young Israel, modern Orthodox, grew also religiously, but pretty much stayed in the mainstream. She was a major influence on me as well because we met in Israel in Jerusalem in 1974. Uh, She had been studying in Hebrew U and I was uh, a tour counselor for American Zionist Youth Foundation that summer. We just happened to be introduced to, you know, not a guy, a good friend of ours who who just introduced us not to date, but we ended up doing so. And by that point, I was already pretty well on my way to being Orthodox. But she had to be accepting because I was not orthodox in the way that she probably knew all of her yeshiva friends to be orthodox. You know, I had a different background. I'm sure there were holes in my, you know, knowledge base. And so she was not 
closed-minded enough to say, well, if he didn't go to yeshiva and he's not learning, you know, four hours a day and all that kind of stuff. So she accepted me as I am. And her family too. Yeah, incredibly so. I, I really loved my in-laws. Uh, they, they only passed away in the last uh, two years. Not once did they criticize me ever, except for one, once. I can remember my father-in-law, the week we got married, he came back from shul and it was, a, he. they probably lived a close to a half a mile away from the shul. He came back from shul before shul was over and he said, you know, you're, you're, you're a um, uh, bridegroom. You know, we don't have to say tachnun if you come to shul. Where are you? How come you're not coming on time? So I looked at him and I said, I am a bridegroom. <laughs> That's why I'm not coming on time. <laughs> and my parents never told me what to do about shul or how to behave, you know, religiously. That was, you know, 40 years, 45, 46 years. Never once did he ever, ever criticize me, ever, except for that one time. We don't want to have to say Tachanun. It was very funny. <laughs> so they, they were very accepting, um, close, thankfully, with the whole family. They were, they were a model of uh, what modern Orthodox, you know, Judaism represents. Good people. And then as you're raising your own family, are you having conversations with your kids about what your background was versus your wife and where you're choosing to land for you as a family? Yes. Before we even had children, I remember talking to my wife about how we were going to you know, bring up the kids and what we were going to do. And we knew people whose children had been brought up religious but didn't stay religious. And my philosophy and my wife, Moshi, agreed that the best we can do is give them the basic foundation, send them to yeshiva, let them learn everything they can. And Religion is such a personal choice. It's such a critical individual choice for each person. Some of us are blessed with having recognized the fact that this is a great place to be on all sorts of levels. And yet some people who have the exact same education, knowledge, families don't accept it. And it's not for them and it doesn't burn in their hearts. So we thought that we would provide them good educations, which we did. We sent them all to yeshiva. And um, we lived a life of modern orthodoxy, which was filled with warmth and love and good friends. And I think the kids themselves all saw this is a wonderful life on a lot of levels. It's in their hearts. It's in their brains. Everything they do is considered from a religious standpoint. They certainly took a hold of that and certainly and have moved certainly to the right of where my wife and I are. And again, never bother us. Once in a while, my my daughter, youngest, will say, uh, you know, when she hands me a, a grape or something, she'll say, uh, you want to say the bracha? You know, just always, <laughs> always with a laugh, you know, always exactly, always with a, you know, a joking laugh. But there's a little meaning in there. You want to say the bracha? So they've all uh, seen the beauty of uh, having that connection to God and to um, the community, the, you know, the Orthodox community. And uh, I mean, they're leading us along the way. They really are. Got it. So there's one more side of you I want to get into, which is teaching, which I mentioned in the introduction. So your story to this point was about kind of the corporate environment. So how does teaching come into the picture? Throughout most of my uh, professional career in, in accounting, I was doing a lot of teaching, both for PricewaterhouseCoopers. I started there giving courses on to the staff, traveled for that. Then at Schlumberger, also traveled all over. I'd go to Paris for a one-day course on M&A, the you know, mergers and acquisitions that I would teach. And I was also teaching as an adjunct in one of the graduate schools of New York, either you know Queens College, Yeshiva University, Baruch, 
I really liked it. I enjoy teaching. It's something I think I'm a lot better at than actually doing. You know? <laughs> uh, they usually say those who can't do teach and those mm -hmm. who can't teach become principals. <laughs> uh, in, in this case, I really enjoy teaching. And thankfully, I'm not doing the teaching, especially now as a full-time professor. I, I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it because I like teaching. I like my students. I like being at YU. I like being able to, you know, Thursday afternoon, wish them all a good Shabbos. I like davening mincha right after one of my classes with my students in my room. It's just a warm, good, fun place. And the students are wonderful too. So that's, uh, that's how I got into teaching. I'd love to continue teaching. Along the way, I got my doctorate at YU. I was there, so I figured, what the heck? You know, I became Dr. Fold at a late age, which is pretty funny to me. My daughter has her doctorate in psychology, and I said, you know, I can't let her beat me out in degrees. <laughs> <laughs> so I got that. And um, teaching is a lot of fun. I recommend it. I also wonder about this idea that you're now teaching in a place where there are a lot of religious kids, which is different than when you were in the corporate environment where you were the only religious person. Maybe there was like one other. So what's it like now getting to teach but have the people around you also be religious because you could have been in a, a secular school with your knowledge base in accounting and tax right and i did and i taught it you know like i said queens or at baruch you know i care about all my students but here when i'm uh, at yu a lot of them come to me for guidance as well not just to you know hear about coursework so there i think i give them that much more insight into what it means to work in the secular world and how to behave. And I've given courses, hour-long, two-hour-long seminars. What does it mean for an Orthodox person going into the professional workplace, secular? She, if a woman hand, you know, puts her hand out to shake your hand, you know, are you allowed to shake it or not? And, you know, Rav Soloveitchik said, of course you shake her hand. You don't embarrass her. What about if we're going out to lunch to a totally non-trafe you know, place? Should I uh, take off my yarmulke or should I not go? What about if we're going out for drinks? Those kind of things I, I enjoy advising them on. I enjoy advising them about interviewing, how to behave, what to say. Recognize that you're always representing us. Mm -hmm. You're always us. You know, even if you take off your yarmulke, if it's says you went to Yeshiva University and you're dressing with your white shirt and your black pants and all that, you're us. They know it. So um, they're my students. I feel like they're sort of my family, my kids. I get a lot of pleasure out of, especially when they come back and they tell me two, three years later, oh, you know, I got, I'm still working at uh, wherever Deloitte. I'm doing great. Uh, your tax course was one. You know, that's the real reward of working with the YU kids is that I get to see them again. I get to talk to them and I hear from them. So it's been a lot of fun. And then lastly, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned over the course of the interview not being a huge sports fan, but I saw in your bio you do like music. So who are some of the bands that you enjoy listening to? Not some. One. <laughs> <laughs> Grateful Dead. Just one. Just great. Well, Grateful Dead, a little reggae, you know, and here and there, this Allman Brothers, those kind of things. But certainly I was a uh, and remain a major fan of the Grateful Dead. Almost... To a religious, I can't say on a religious level, but there was a religious aspect to it in that I remember, you know, being at some of these dead concerts and thanking God for having created the Grateful Dead to give us such beautiful music. 
And then on, on Yom Kippur, thinking about sort of the Grateful Dead as well, having been there to lead me and guide me in, in uh, beautiful music and, a, and making friends through the dead. They were, <laughs> it's a, it's a, a community. It's a community as well, uh, without all the rules and restrictions and, and certainly not the benefits right. to an extent. But um, yeah, no, I was a, a, certainly a deadhead uh, and enjoyed it a lot. It was a lot of fun. It made me who I am too. All right. So last question before we go to our lightning round, where we finish with our interviewees, what's next for you? You've had such an interesting story of becoming more religious and the corporate stuff you've done and getting into teaching. So what's on your bucket list for the next few years? Israel. That's got it. It's the, uh, it's like a no brainer. We're going to be hopefully, you know, if, if it's meant uh, to be, we'll be moving to Israel and then hopefully in the next year and a half or so to be in Israel with our kids, you know, and grandkids. I mean, you know, regretfully, my, uh, the last of our parents passed away uh, this past year. My wife is still in Avel. Once my mother-in-law passed away, that cut all tie. I mean, we're going to miss horribly our great friends that we have here in Teaneck and around, the eateries that we have here. But um, it's kind of a no-brainer. We're moving to Israel. That's it. A new adventure. It's a pretty clear game plan. So let's go into our lightning round to finish off the interview. Sure. So the first question is about the Grateful Dead, who you said you're a big fan. So what's your favorite song? Sugar Magnolia. It describes my wife, somebody who's there always for me and picks up everything and keeps me out of trouble for the most part. There's a million great songs for me anyway, you know, trucking and and all sorts of stuff. But that one is the one that I find uh, best for me. Got it. And so then on Shabbos, when you can't play the Grateful Dead, what's a Jewish song you like to sing around the Shabbos table? So that's interesting because not having grown up with uh, that and also having, I think it was, I'm I'm not going to quote who it was, but who said to break out into song in the middle of a meal on Shabbos is just so unnatural. We don't do it. It had to have some German blood in him. So I leave most of that, the nigunim and the singing to my wife and kids. And I, I just, I hum along. <laughs> okay. Well said. So let's now close the interview with what we started with. And let's ask you one question about this unbelievable mustache. What's the food most likely to get caught in there at a Shabbos meal? Soup. But it's a great thing because I, you know, like two hours later, I can like lick my, <laughs> lick my mustache and, and and eat my delicious pea soup. You know, it's it's a great thing to have that mustache. <laughs> Beautiful one to end on, Lenny. I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. I really enjoyed this. I really did. Thank you very much. All the best. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at taklismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.